KMTT. Welcome to KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today is Tuesday. Kav Chet Ba'adar. Today is Election Day in Israel. This morning I got up to vote. I have a minhag on Election Days in Israel to vote as early as possible. I still... I still get dressed. I still put on my my best sports jacket. It was a difficult vote this year. I'm not going to tell you who I voted for. It was a very difficult decision, and that was not the pleasant part. But nonetheless, despite the great difficulty I had in choosing who to vote for, I must say that I still address Yom HaBchirot, Election Day in Israel, as a Yom Chag. I gave a tish in my house to my shir last Friday night and I was talking about the schut, of voting, and one of the boys asked me quite seriously whether or not I thought one should make a shechiyano on the first time. The boys in my shir, it's, most of them, it's the first time they're voting. They're, they're 19 years old. So I had to say that I'm not, I don't think Al Pidin you can make a Vekat Shechiyano B'Shemu B'Malchut, with God's name. But the question, I guess, arose because of the enthusiasm with which I spoke about the mitzvah. It's something which has been said many times, and sometimes when you repeat something over and over again, we begin to think that it's it's trivial. But nonetheless, it's worth repeating, something which you have all heard. As much as we have problems in choosing who to vote for and our trepidations as to what will happen after the election, it's always important to remember what would our forefathers, our grandfathers, what would... Rav Kiveh the Rambam, Rav Sajigan, have given to be able to vote in Medinat Israel, To vote for Malchut Yisrael. Irrespective of, irrespective of the outcome. And how many Jews did not have that opportunity and were not able to see that day. And so today is a Yom Chag. Tomorrow may not be a Yom Chag. We'll see who won. We'll see what happens after they win. But today, in any event, is a Yom Chag. And today's shir will be given by myself, the shir in Jewish philosophy. This will be the last shir in this series. Uh, next week at this time, there will be a shir in Hilchot Pesach, getting ready for Pesach. And in the summer after Pesach, we will begin a, a different series, a new series. In general, KMTT will try to switch We'll have new series beginning after after Pesach. After the Shir, I'll be back with today's Halacha Yomit. We have spoken in the last couple of weeks a number of times of the mitzvah of Ahavat Hashem, of the love of God. This came up in the context of Rav Chastei Kreskas, who posits Ahavat Hashem as the purpose and end of life, of Torah, and of creation, in contradiction to the Rambam, who speaks of Yidiat Hashem, the knowledge of God, as the purpose of life. But, of course, Abat Hashem is a mitzvah in the Torah, and obviously an important uh, aspect of religious life, according to all philosophers and all, uh, and all Rishonim. And therefore, I would like to speak today about, to begin to address, to begin to address, uh, the principle of Avat Hashem, the love of God, in the different uh, thinkers, at least within the era 
that we are speaking not about all them either. It's an amazingly wide and varied topic, but we'll address two, perhaps three thinkers who spoke about Avat Hashem. One point, which we've already seen, has to do with where you place Avat Hashem. Rav Kreskas places Avat Hashem at the pinnacle, at the summit, at the end of religious life. All religious life is geared to bringing one to Avat Hashem. As opposed to the Rambam, who not only does not place it as at the summit, but in fact places it, at least in the normal sense of the word Avat Hashem, at, at more or less at the beginning. The Rambam in Hilchot Yisadei Torah, when he defines the mitzvah of Avat Hashem and Yirat Hashem, both love of God and the fear of God, the Rambam explains that they lead one to the knowledge of God. The Rambam describes how if someone views the world, he views the stars, he views the spheres, he views everything which God has created and realizes how much wisdom, how much greatness, how much goodness is invested in this world that God has created, thereby realizing or beginning to realize the wisdom and goodness of God, he immediately becomes filled with love of God as well as fear, meaning trepidation or awe of, of God who has done all this. And as a result of that love of God, he wants to come closer to God and know Him. Rambam immediately says, and know Him. So love of God becomes a, a catalyst, a psychological catalyst for the desire to know God. So that's, that, that's one distinction as to where we place Avat Hashem. But I'd like to speak today about what the meaning of Avat Hashem is. It's a very difficult concept to define. In general, love is a difficult concept to define. Let's start with an example of someone who superficially agrees with Avchasei Kreskas. He places Avat Hashem at the end, at the pinnacle of the religious life. And that's what Benu Bachya Ibn Pakuda, the author of Chovat HaLavavot. Chovat HaLavavot is a book, usually very often categorized as being Musa rather than, rather than philosophy. The distinction is somewhat uh, artificial in the Middle Ages. The Chovat HaLavavot, the obligations of the heart. That's the meaning of the name, and it's the meaning of the book. He has a long introduction explaining why he wrote this. He says people spend a lot of time trying to understand chovot ha'evarim, the obligations of one's limbs, meaning what we call mitzvot, mitzvot ma'asiyot, mitzvot that you do with your body, and not enough time on chovot ha'levavot, the mitzvot of the heart. Chovot ha'levavot is divided into sha'arim. We've become so used to this terminology as a means of dividing books, that you more or less in your head you, do, you, you call it a chapter. Uh, or or a, uh, a larger, a book, because uh, each has, 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 has prakim, has chapters. But just another word for chapter. Uh, but one should realize that this is one of the first books to utilize this particular uh, metaphor for division. And when the Chovat HaLavavot is divided into Sha'arim, into gates, he means it literally. They are gates in the sense that you go through one to get through to the other. And it's important to realize that in Chobat HaLavot, the first gate is called Shar HaYichud, which is devoted to what for the Rambam is the end of religious life. It's devoted to the proofs of the existence and the unity of God. That's the first Shar, the first gate of Chobat HaLavot. You pass through that gate and you then enter the second gate, which in this case is called Shara Bechina. And after Shara Bechina, you come to Shara Avodat Elokim. 
And after Shavadat Elokim, you come to Shah Habitachon, etc., etc. The last, the tenth Shah, the one you can only get to if you've passed through all the others, because the metaphor is meant literally by an Obachka, you have to pass through each gate, each room, and get to the next gate. The last gate is Sha'ar Ahavat Hashem, the gate of the love of God. So this is superficially similar to Rav Chasdei Kreskas. The purpose, the end, the end result of religious activity is to reach the state called Ahavat Hashem. But if we look at the definition, what does he mean by the word Ahava, we get a totally different picture. The exact opposite. Menubachia, in the first chapter of Shah Avat Hashem, explains what he means by those words. What, what is this thing called Ava, the love of God? Who? Klot Hanefesh, El It's the yearning of the soul and its tendency and its leaning towards the Creator in order to cleave to His light, to His higher light. What does this yearning consist of? Why does the soul yearn to come close to God? So, Berebachia explains that the soul is a spiritual entity. In itself, it is a purely spiritual entity. And therefore, it has a natural tendency to, to belong to other spiritual entities, to things which are similar to it. And it mitracheket bitiva, it naturally distances itself from that which is the opposed, the opposite of uh, spiritual entities, namely physical entities. But since the soul lives in a physical world, it has to take care of its physical body. And therefore, the soul spends a lot of its time, according to Rehabachia, taking care of physical things. It has no choice. But, the soul begins to realize that by taking care of the body, it's, it's, it's choking itself. And it needs light. It needs light for itself. So it begins to yearn for that which will, which will give light to itself. And it wishes to come close to that thing. It yearns and lusts for it. And that is the love of God. In other words, for Ben the love of God consists of the need of the spiritual soul to immerse itself in its natural environment. Love of man for God is the love of someone who is in a cave in the dark for the light. God is the light of the soul. In another metaphor used later on, it's like a sick person who, who, who yearns for a doctor, who yearns for medicine. You're looking to get back to your natural healthy state. And Rabbi Yacha, I'm not going to read it within, but Rabbi Yacha continues, and, and because of the dichotomy he's established between body and soul, between the physical and the spiritual world, so he says quite explicitly that one who is engaged in love of God is oblivious, becomes oblivious, 
by, na- by both nature and obligation, must be oblivious to concerns of the body. For, he says even more strongly, a little bit later, in the Shah Ava Tashem, that true love of God is in contradiction. It negates love of other people. Obviously, his motto is a kind of romantic love, where you only love one. He says, if you love God, there isn't any room left, there can't be really room left for love of others. And, and Rebbe has, in his more extreme passages, descriptions of the true Oved Hashem, filled with love of God and totally detached from his natural environment, including his family, including his fellow men. The love of God takes you out of this world into the world where there is only where only God exists. Ein od milvado. Rav Chaste Kreskas, who speaks of Avat Hashem as the end of man, has a very, very different philosophical basis for it, and therefore has a very, very different, in my opinion, content and definition of what the love is. Rav Chaste's love of God is based on a statement he makes, that Hatov Ohev et Hatov Vahashalem. The good loves the good and the perfect. It's a moral principle. It says if you're good, if you believe in morality, if you have morality, then you are in favor of morality. You love, in his words, you love the good and the perfect. The good and the perfect means God, and the first good is a person. The good, a good person, loves the good, capital G, and the perfect. We mentioned in a previous shiur that love for Avchastai is very close to the concept of service. You love something, at least the expression of the love, is that you do things for what you love. As you recall, I mentioned that Avchastai says that God loves the world, not just that the world loves God. How do we know God loves the world? Because He created it. So he must love the world because He's doing things for the world, not for Himself. He doesn't get anything out of it. So He's doing things for the world for the sake of the world. That, that's called, that, that is called love. He created the world. He maintains it. He keeps it running. He keeps us running. He gives us things. That means that He loves, God loves the world. And if you recall, I mentioned that if Chassid says that God loves the world more than the world could possibly love God because God, God's love for the world is based on His infinite capacity for love even though the object of his love is not all that great. Whereas our love of God is based on our finite and, and incomplete capacity for love, even though the object of our love is perfection, is God. So the concept of love means service and, or allegiance. I think a better word would be allegiance. Teva hatov, hatov ohevet hatov shalem. The, the good loves the good, meaning that we have allegiance to, to morality, to God who is morality and who is perfect. Now, that, that's a very different conception than the conception that we saw in Rabbeinu Bachya. For instance, one simple indication of that, the love of Rav Chastai is reversible. As I said, we love God and God loves us. Not just reversible, I think he really means that it's one. You know, God and man are in a loving relationship. The love of Benobache is irreversible. You, the, the soul yearns to return and immerse itself in pure spirituality, but there's no reason for God 
to yearn to be close to man on the basis of what Rabbeinu Bachya has said. Incidentally, the same is true for the Rambam. Love of God in the Rambam is a kind of admiration. When you see something which is great and wonderful, you're filled with, with, with love and appreciation and admiration of it. There's no reason for God when viewing us to be filled with amazement and appreciation and love for the wonder that is called man. But for Chastai, since it's based on that the good loves the good, so indeed, imperfectly good man loves perfectly good God, but perfectly good God loves imperfectly good man, despite the fact that he's only imperfectly good, but nonetheless, because God is perfectly good, so therefore he's committed, what does good say? Good tells you to serve others. And therefore God's goodness is expressed in his service of others, and in, meaning he does things for others. The word service is a little bit stranger, but that's basically, it's basically correct. God is serving the world by taking care of it. And therefore, God actually loves, God loves the world as well. If I can make a parenthetical remark on the word I just used, I use the word service. It sounds, it sounds strange to speak of God serving man, but that's really based on the fact that we have, I think for Avchastai would say, we have a warped view of what it means to serve others. We assume that a serving others is the attitude of the inferior to the superior. You serve someone because he's superior to you. But if Chastai says you serve someone because you're good, not because he demands it, but the inherent goodness in someone leads him to help. If you don't like the word serve, to help others, to do for others. And therefore God who is infinitely good, so that's all he does, is he does things for others. He maintains the worlds. Because God's infinite goodness requires, leads him to constantly be doing things for others. So service arises not because we've been pressed into service, because we're inferior, but it's an expression, you might say, of superiority. Not superiority to the person you're helping, but, but a, an inherent value within yourself. So man serves God because he loves the good, and God serves man because he also loves the good. He himself is good and he loves and he loves anyone who is good who reflects his own his own infinite infinite goodness. So the picture of love in Ubainobachya is a is a yearning which on the one hand is based on your need. Man's soul needs to return to God because it's basically oppressed by living in a physical environment. I wouldn't use the word selfish, but it is based on one's needs, one's lackings, one's faults, one's problems. And two, it's, it's a yearning of being close. It's a yearning to, 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 to immerse oneself within God. The love of God of Avchastai is moral. It's expressed not by a desire to immerse oneself in God, but to act for God, to do things for God, to do His will, or to do things for His name. Kadesh Shmo, if you remember the mitzvah v'ahavtat Hashem Elokecha, the mitzvah to love God, mentioned in the Torah, is understood by Chazal, first and foremost, to require one to be mosanefesh, to even to die for God's name, to be Makadesh Shem Shemaim, to sanctify His name in all places. 
I tend to think I don't know that much about uh, about Spanish literature in the late 14th century. But I, I, I can't help to see when I think about what Chastai means by love, so I, I see the nature of love described by Cervantes in Don Quixote, which was written 150 years later, but is deliberately, is among other things, deliberately anachronistic. And Don Quixote is in love with his lady, and it's expressed not by his looking for her and, 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 and hugging her, but by his roaming around the countryside doing things in her name. She inspires him to do things. In fact, of course, the parody of, of Don Quixote is that she doesn't actually even exist. And I think that's closer to what Rav Chastai means by, by love. That's why he says, what I mentioned last week, that a person who is alive doesn't wish to be dead and be in Olam Haba and in the embrace of God. He wishes to stay in this world where he can do things for God. Although God wishes man to come closer to him and, and, and achieve that embrace that dveikut, that is olam, that is olam abba. So we've just mentioned three different definitions of love. One is the Rambam's kind of love, in the beginning of Hilchot Isodei Torah, where the Rambam's love is close to admiration or adoration. It's the emotion that arises when you see something which is wonderful, magnificent, fantastic, beyond your everyday experiences or expectations. Which is why it's so close to awe. And the Ramam immediately ties Avat Hashem to Yirat Hashem. The difference is that Ava leads you to become close and Yirah leads you to step away. But the word awe sort of covers both of them. You're in awe, amazed, but you're a little bit taken aback because it's so much greater than what you're used to. The love of Hashem in Sefer Chovat Alavavot is a yearning to come close, a yearning to immerse oneself, to almost to disappear. Klot HaNeshama, the expression he used, which I translated as yearning for God, but it also has the same shoresh, the same root as to disappear. Liot Kala, to end oneself. You want to immerse, to, to bury yourself in God almost to the extent of no longer existing yourself. This he doesn't say. He doesn't say it. He, he does speak of negating one's physical existence, but not of negating one's existence. The only philosopher that I can think of on one foot who speaks of love of God as being negating oneself altogether is the Maharal in Sefer Netivot Yisrael, he speaks about Avat Hashem, the very beginning there, he connects Avat Hashem to Kiddush Hashem, as Chazal do, and Kiddush Hashem, the highest expression of his, is to die for God's name, if that's necessary. And the Maral connects all these two together and says that Avat Hashem is, you love God to the extent that Ein Ol Nulvado, that He's everything, and therefore you really wish to be nothing. That's a very extreme expression. It's, it may be more extreme than what Rebbe Bachke had in mind, but it's not all that different. The Rav Chastai's Avat Hashem is not at all in that direction. 
it's not based so much on amazing admiration as it's based on allegiance and commitment. As I said, it's based on morality. Its, it's, it's root is in only the good can love. And love is, the, is what, love is what good does. The good expresses love, meaning, meaning chesed, meaning doing things, meaning, meaning giving. Love and giving are the same thing. Love is a moral virtue. And that's why, for instance, Rav Chastai would not come to the point that the Chobat HaLavavot came to, where love of God is in competition with love of others. On the contrary. According to Rav Chastai, when you love others, you love your family, you love the poor, you love Amisa, you love all of humanity, that's not a contradiction to love of God. That itself is an expression of love of God. Because it's all love of the good. The good gives to others. Of course, you give even more to God because He is Hatova Hashalem. But loving good means that you give. Loving good means that you serve. Loving good means you serve everyone who needs to be served. And there's no contradiction whatsoever between love of humanity, love of one's family, and the love and the love of God in Rav Chastai. Now, for Rav Chastai, love of God is also the key to the achievements of the religious life. I said love of God is what man is meant to do, but it also is what is meant to happen to man. We know we associate this with Olam Haba, and Rav Chastai says that yes, because love is real. He is, a, in this sense, he is a romantic. If two people are in love, then they are devekim, then they are somehow joined and unified through their love. And therefore, love of God, you achieve a kind of unity with God. This idea of unity is expressed by Rav Chastai in a very uh, uh, dramatic manner when he speaks about the opposite point, love of God for men, which I pointed out. It, it always goes together in Rav Chastai. There's a famous question, which is not necessarily philosophic. It's, 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 it's a popular question, and it has a philosophic basis in Aristotelianism. If God is infinitely greater than man, if God is, is, is beyond any, relationship, any, any, any comparison to man, then how does, he, how does he stand in relationship to man? How, why is he interested in man? As I said, this is not necessarily a philosophic question. For instance, Chazal, in pre-Aristotelian times, ask or rather answer this question when they say in a place where you find God's greatness there specifically you find that's where you find his his not greatness his, his meekness his, his making himself small meaning that he takes care of, of every individual person it's true he, he runs the world he's, he's involved in, in wars and kings and queens but, but he also takes care of the small problem of the yatom, the almanah, the orphan and the widows and, and because for God there's no contradiction there. But, but, but this, this bothers people. This Chazal had to say it because somehow if you're that great then, then how do you manage to get involved in, in, in small little trivial people? Philosophically this was a problem for Statilianism. God's thinking so God thinks about the greatest of all thoughts and therefore God doesn't think about you at all. He thinks about himself in Aristotle. The Ramam, of course, does not agree to that. But, but, but the idea remains that God's thought should encompass pure thought. 
and therefore it becomes a question how he thinks and is concerned about the fact that I this morning I went to shul and I came home and I was locked out of my house because everybody had left and locked me out and I was upset Aristotle it's ridiculous to think that God is concerned about something like that and even non-Aristotelians and even non-philosophers have a certain feeling you know is God the great involved in the movement of one person to the left to the right he fell and he scraped his knee is God does God feel that pain but Chastai's answer to this question is we're talking here about love not about thought and Chastai says love it's true God is infinitely beyond man but love connects things which are infinitely apart. Not that God becomes, comes down. God remains infinitely beyond man. But God's infinite love spans that distance because love is not concerned with the greatness or, or super-significance of the problem. God joins together, loves, excuse me, love joins together things which are infinitely apart but that's precisely what love is able to do, that it puts them it puts them together. So speaking now on the other side, when we love God, the same infinite gap exists. How can you love God? Remember one place speaks of does does the servant girl love the king? It's too far beyond beyond her possible expectations. But of course he says no. Yes, so we, we, we love God because the good loves the good. And to the extent that you're good, you love all the more pure good, perfect good, and perfection. And love doesn't love, love bridges the gap, doesn't eliminate the gap, but love bridges the gap between between two persons who 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 have that love between them. And therefore, Avchaste says, love is olam haba, because when you're davek. With God, when you cleave onto God, when you're somehow united with God, that is the eternal life of of Olam of Olam Abba. There are many, many other opinions. I think there are as, as many thinkers as there are in Israel. That's how many fine shadings of meaning one can have to the concept of Avat Hashem. And of course, if you speak about Avat Hashem, you have to speak also about Yirat Hashem something which Chassai does not speak about. Uh, but you have to speak about the two of them together and what the difference between them is. And there is, of course, a huge literature about this. Not all of it philosophical. Sometimes you have to sort of scrape beneath the surface to see what a person means by the word Ava. Not necessarily Avat Hashem. Just what does it mean by Ava? It's a human emotion. Notoriously difficult to define. So, even in the Middle Ages, I think we've only scraped, uh, scraped the surface. We've touched on the Rambam, Anubin Ubachya, Anubchastai Kreskas, and unfortunately, our time is up, both for today and for the series. And for the series itself, we've only scraped the surface of the great literature, which is Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages. There's a tendency today to begin Jewish thought in the last 50, 60 years. Somehow the medieval philosophy, one, because it's hard, but two, because it seems somehow distant scholastic concerned with, with abstractions and people have a tendency to skip it and right away to go and read Hasidut or Musa or, or, or other kinds of literature from the last uh, 1500 years one of the things I've tried to show in the series is that the basic issues 
the rational definitional issues which were treated for the first time in an explicit manner in the Middle Ages Sajigon, the Rambam and the others we've mentioned that those concepts lie at the core and the basis for any other expansion and extension of Jewish philosophy and thought that will take place later on. Much, much more than we have touched on is found in the original texts and the discussions, both in the topics we've discussed and in many other topics we haven't even gotten to. But that's all we're going to do in this series. Perhaps in the future we will come back to other topics in Jewish philosophy. I've enjoyed very much giving the series. And I wish to wish you all well and continued study in Torah, in Machshavat Yisrael. And at this opportunity also to wish you a Chag Pesach Kasher V'Sameach. For today's Halakha Yomit, we're moving into Shmon Esrei. Finally, we're beginning to actually say Shmon Esrei. There's a Halakha, which everybody knows, that it's a source forbidden to be mafsik, to have any interruption in Shmon Esrei. An interruption would be if you went to speak about something else, for instance. If the person next to you, when you're davening, sneezes. So you don't say, Gesundheit to him. Because that would be a half-sick. But silence is also a half-sick. We mentioned this in, in uh, I think, in Sukkot Zimra. Silence is also a hefsek if it's long enough. And the length of a hefsek of silence is kedei ligmor et kula, the amount of time it would take you, in this case, to say all of Shema Nesri. So that's quite a long amount of time. But the event, but you, one could have a situation where silence, simply stopping and, and saying nothing, could be considered to be a hefsek as well. Uh, question arises, and it's a great machloket, uh, dispute among the Rishonim. Suppose you're davening, but you're davening a little bit longer than the Chazan. And the Chazan has already started Chazarat HaShatz. So, in Shema Nesrei, you can't be mafsik for anything. It's more it's more strict than, say, Kriyat Shema. In Kriyat Shema, one is Onem Yishum HaKavod. And therefore, most people can say that if you, if, the, if someone, if the, if the Shul, if the Chazan is saying Kedusha, and you're in, in Kriyat Shema, so you can answer Kedusha. And and Heshmei Rabba for for Kaddish, but in Shmonesra you're not allowed to say anything whatsoever. So that's that's agreed by all the poskim. The Bahag, however, suggested, and then it was quoted by many many Rishonim that you can stop and listen, because if you listen to the Chazan saying Kedusha, we have the principle of Shomeya Keone, one who hears someone else say something, it's as though he said it, assuming that one has intention to be fulfill the mitzvah to be Yotzei, and the person speaking has the intention to be motzi you. So on the assumption that the chazan knows that that's his, that's his job, to be motzi anyone who wants to be yotzi with him, then the Bahak says, so you could not be mafsik, because you're not speaking, you're not saying tusha, but you listen to the chazan say tusha, and therefore you also fulfill the mitzvah of saying tusha. And therefore he says that's what you should do. You're, let's say, in the middle of some other bracha, you're in the middle of uh, Shema Koleinu or Modim, so you stop and you listen with Kavana to be Yotze, to the Chazan saying Kedusha, and then you're Yotze. Of course, this assumes 
that the Chazan is actually saying Kadosh in a manner which you can hear. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, in a few days, but in many, many cases, many, many shuls, the Chazan doesn't say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh out loud. He says it together with the Tzibu. He only says, Lumatam Baruch Yomeru, or Meshabchim Yomim out loud. If so, then the Bahag won't work. You, you have to listen to the Chazan say it. You have to hear him say it. In order to be Yotzei, the Shomeika Oneh. However, Tosfot says that one may not do that. And he has a very simple argument. He says, if Shomeya is Ka'oneh, if listening to someone say something is as though you said it, well, you're not allowed to say things, because that would be a hefsek. And therefore, even listening would also be a hefsek, not because you're being quiet, but in this case, you're being quiet and having Shomeya Ka'oneh. Your quiet is listening, and your listening is a form of speaking, basically, according to the Lacha. Listening is like speaking. Shomeya Ka'oneh. But you're not allowed to speak, and therefore you're not allowed to listen with the covenant to be Yotze either. It's a catch-22 situation. If you're not Yotze, it's okay. But then you don't gain anything. But if you are Yotze, the very fact that you're Yotze is a hefsek. You don't have to talk to the hefsek. You have to be engaged in something else. And listening, and as though you were saying Kedusha, is being engaged in something else other than Tefillah. And therefore, Tosa says, one may not. It's a sur. You, you, you're ruining Shman if you follow the Bahag's uh, advice. Many Rishonim agree with Tosfat. Rabbeinu Yonah says, well, it's a big machloket. It's impossible to pass in such a case. Whatever you do is the right thing. And this has been, this was quoted by many other uh, poskim as well. The, the minig is to follow the Bahag's advice and not to worry about Tosfat's uh, 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 restriction. However, the halach is really, is really unclear. It's one of those things which is not, there isn't a final psak. And uh, so I'm not going to pass it either. I'm not telling you what to do. Uh, Tosus himself says that he knows the minag was to listen and to follow the bahag, but he recommended not doing it. They recommended not doing it. And that uh, indecision in halacha, I think, more or less exists today, although many posts can say that you should, you should follow the bahag. Um, so it's basically left up to you. If you follow accepted, more or less accepted halacha, then you should, if it happens to you, then you should stop and listen. But it's, I think you should be aware of the fact that there is an opposite psak, literally opposite. It's impossible to follow both of them. An opposite psak that one definitely should not listen. One should keep uh, saying Shemun Esrei or not not listen because it's asur to be mafsik in Shemun This we have to add. The question is, why is it so important to be Yotzei? Is there a mitzvah? Is there a chiv to hear Kedusha? It's hard to imagine the answer is yes. Kedusha exists. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. If one hears someone else saying Kedusha, one should answer. However, it's not as if you're, you're losing out on a chiv. It's a chiv to daven. And there's a chiv there for the daven properly without being mafsik. I, I doubt that there's a chiv to say Kedusha. And that sort of weighs in uh, if there's really a suffix, whether it's a good thing to listen or not to listen. It could be you shouldn't listen because what do you lose? You just So you didn't say Kedusha. Uh, you lost out on an opportunity to, to, be, to praise God in the most wonderful way but you haven't actually uh, transgressed any particular chiyuf. So, again, there are two sides, and I'm leaving the lacha up to you. And that's all for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the weekly mitzvah of our Rav Benjamin Tavori. Until then, wishing you a beautiful day, a wonderful day here from Gush Etzion, Bibukata Torah Mitzion. You've been listening to KMTT. Ki mitzion tetzei Torah udvar Hashem mirushalayim.